We have concluded our walk through the Psalms this summer, and I hope you enjoyed that series as much as I did. We now begin a new series in the book of Philippians, and just so you have an understanding of our trajectory of where we're headed, we're going to be in Philippians for a few weeks, and then we will then enter into the book of Malachi as we head into Advent, where the, uh, as we look forward to that time, and there's this gap right between the end of the Old Testament and then we long for the coming of Christ. And so that's what we're trying, that I'm trying to have us accomplish or to understand and to sense and to feel is this longing for Emmanuel to come and be with us. But now, if you are able, please rise as we read God's Word from the first chapter of, of Philippians. We'll be reading a bit of Scripture here this morning, um, verses 1 to 18, but hear the reading of God's Word from Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because your partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the Gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the Gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. The reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank You for this, Your Word, where You have told us that the flowers will wither and they will die. The grass will do the same. But Your Word... It will stand firm. And it will stand true forever and ever. So Lord Jesus, send Your Holy Spirit to carry this Your Word to this Your people that they may stand firm and true in Your Word. In Jesus' strong name we pray all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. Before we jump in, I just want to give us a little bit of historical context to the book of Philippi. It's a Roman colony uh, conquered by Caesar Augustus and there were a lot of Romans in Philippi and that has a big weight upon this letter and why Paul is writing it to these people here. It had a major thoroughfare going through the center of the town that was a center of commerce and economy and it was a, a bustling town and Paul had planted a church here back in the late 40s, early 50s A.D. And we see that from Acts chapter 16. So if your math is any good, mine's usually not, but I had to use a calculator. Maybe not. But about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul planted this church 
in Philippi. And here, some years later now, he is writing back to his friends. Just a bit of a brief history of where we're at in the book of Philippi. Whereas in the 22nd day of September in the year of our Lord, 1,862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following to wit, that on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall thou be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward and forever, free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. Abraham Lincoln. I take you to be my wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health as long as we both shall live. Ryan Arkema, July 5th, 1997. We like proclamations. We make them all the time. We love to hear them. We love to see them. We love to see them play themselves out. We like proclamations. Some proclamations have impacts that last through all of history. Some have impacts that last for a lifetime. Some for a year or two. Some for just a shorter time. And some never really exist at all. Yet no matter the length, we like proclamations because we hope they do last. We hope they have real and significant value in our lives and the lives of the people that we love and cherish. We like proclamations. Here in, Philipp- here in Philippians, Paul is rejoicing. He's rejoicing in a proclamation. He's rejoicing in a proclamation that Jesus is being preached. And the Gospel is going forth. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstances, Jesus is being preached and Jesus is being proclaimed and the Gospel is advancing. This is what Paul is rejoicing about. Paul is rejoicing because this Gospel is going forward in the halls of prison cells, in the halls of the Roman guards, in the halls of Jewish temples, and in the halls of God's people and their homes. And it is a proclamation that still resounds even to this day. And is proclaimed in this hall. In the halls of our homes. In the halls of many entities within our culture. And it still goes through every corner of our world to this day. That proclamation is that the people of God are united, they're partnered, and they're joined through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And that the Gospel is preached. And this, Paul says, is why he rejoices. He says, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Because Jesus is proclaimed. And so as we enter into this book of Philippians, I want us to engage with this book 
not merely as just another book that we preach through and we have to sit here and listen to, but I want us to really understand what this book is really all about and what it is that Paul is actually saying. My prayer is that we would see Philippians for the way it was intended to be seen, or better yet, the way it was intended to be heard by the original audience. So this letter, it's a letter written by a man who was chained to a prison wall. It's a letter written by a man chained to a prison wall to a group of people that he desperately and dearly loves. As I said, Paul planted this church only a few years after Jesus' resurrection. And he planted this church on the foundation and on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ alive and caring for them and redeeming them. And he did that to a people that he knows well. If you remember back to our time that we spent in Acts, Paul is writing to Lydia. He's writing to the jailer. He's writing to that demon-possessed girl. He's writing to Yudia and Sikhi. And he's writing to many others that we don't know their names. He knew these people. They knew him. He was their pastor. He was their friend. He was their partner. So this is not an impersonal support letter. Hey guys, give me money for my ministry type of thing. No, this is a letter of real intimacy to people he knew and to people who knew him. To dear friends, loved ones. So in a very real sense, we are reading someone else's mail. But it's not just any kind of mail. But it was a note intended for a close friend. Have you ever written a handwritten note to a close friend? Have you ever received a handwritten note from a close friend? It has significance. It has value, doesn't it? It's better than an email. Far better than a text. But a handwritten note to say I love you, that Jesus loves you, that I care for you, I'm here for you, this is what Paul is doing. It may not be his pen. Most likely someone else is transcribing it from him for him. Yet it's a personal letter attached with his heart to a, his heartfelt love for his dear friends. But this morning, the same truth applies to us. For this is God's Word. And so this also is not only an intimate letter to Paul's dear friends, but my dear friends, this is a letter for you. Not written to you, but written for you. And so the same truth that applied to this original audience now applies to us here this morning. And so may we engage with this letter as the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words is now taking the words that I say and that are written here to you, carrying them to you to know just how wide and how deep and rich is the love of Jesus for those whom He dearly loves. In other words, you, us. At the outset of this letter, Paul uses a very familiar Greek way to begin. It's not what we do in our world. We put our names at the end. 
in the Greek world, they would put their names, excuse me, at the beginning. He names himself and Timothy and describes the status that they have in Christ. They are literally slaves imprisoned for Christ. In every way possible, but more importantly, it seems to me that this introduction serves far more than simply providing information on the identity of the authors. In addition to accomplishing this important task, it provides a foundation for the entirety of the letter. It brings the Gospel to the very forefront of the letter to these dear friends of Paul's. He's saying, this is who we are. This is who you are. We are in Christ together. It brings Jesus to the center of the conversation. It accomplished this is not only by naming Him, but proclaiming that the only reason they are friends and they are beloved in the first place is because of Jesus. They have nothing if not for the reality that they are all slaves in Christ. Then Paul does something quite remarkable. He reminds them not only of himself and Timothy, but he reminds his friends who they are. And who are they? Christ has called this church to be His people. He's called this church to be His people at this particular place, at this particular time, and in this particular, in these particular people. Excuse me. He did not call them to be saints in Ephesus, or Galatia, or Corinth. He called them to be saints in Philippi. They are to be God's witnesses. They are to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ in Philippi. And it's a joy to see for Paul to see them remain faithful and steadfast in the face of such cultural opposition in this very pro-Roman, pro-emperor city. It must have been great. And yet before he enters into the core of his letter, he provides them with a pastoral note of encouragement and comfort. He says to them, Grace and peace. This is a blessing. It's a blessing that is asking for unmerited blessing to be bestowed upon them, for blessings that they don't deserve. And nonetheless, Paul blesses the congregation with this reality. It is not him who provides either or any of their blessings, but the Lord God Himself. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ from God our Father. I want now as we begin our time in this wonderful letter. In this wonderful letter that Paul sent to his dear friends, I want us again to jump to the end of our text that we read for today. Look at verse 18 with me if you will. If you have your Bibles open or if you were in an app or something like that, scroll down or peer down to verse 18. For once again, this is a, this is a building block of everything that comes before it. Verse 18, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. He's talking about the preaching of the Gospel and what it means. But he's also summarizing the very things he's just said in the preceding paragraphs. And he concludes by saying, all of this is true, and I rejoice. All of this is true, and yes, I will rejoice. So what is he saying? In every situation, I will rejoice. Does that mean he's always happy? And he's always in a great mood? Of course not. But he says in every situation, whether in pretense or truth, whether imprisoned or free, rejoice. Because Jesus is proclaimed. 
So what he's saying to his friends is there's a lot of speculation running around that there were some disagreements in the church about who was preaching and what they were saying and how they were preaching it. And Paul says, don't worry about all that. The name of Jesus is being proclaimed and you are being filled with right and good relationships. You are being filled with the fruit of righteousness and you are being filled with rejoicing. So rejoice because Jesus is proclaimed. This is the very tenant. This is the, the theme, the thrust of Philippians chapter 1. Rejoice because you're being filled with relationships, with righteousness, and even with rejoicing. From my vantage point, we at this church, in this section of God's world at Redeemer Arlington, aren't wrestling with exactly the same things as the church at Philippi. From what I can tell, we're not bickering, maybe you are, about how good or bad the preacher is or whether or not he's preaching the Gospel. So what do we have to learn from Philippians chapter 1? Our culture does struggle with these things. The world around us is hurting with these things. But yet, even here in this congregation, we struggle with partnerships. We struggle with relationships. We struggle with what does it mean to be righteous. And frankly, sometimes we struggle to rejoice. And this is what Paul's talking about in these few verses, in these paragraphs. So what does it mean to rejoice in these situations? The command here from Paul is to do just that. Because no matter the circumstance, is to rejoice in what Jesus has accomplished for you. And so as good Bible readers, then we must understand the reasoning behind what is being asked of us. Paul is saying rejoice, right? That's clear. He's telling us to rejoice in any and all circumstances. Again, that doesn't mean you have to be in a good mood all the time or everything's wonderful at any given moment. That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? How is it and what is it that we need to rejoice about? Scripture often gives us commands but it always gives us the rationale behind the command. It gives us, do this, but here's why you should do this. right? Even if we look at the law, and you've heard me say this before, there's ten commandments the Lord gives. You should do these ten things in order you should live well in the land, but why? why should I do them? And God says, well, because I took you up out of the land of Egypt, I took you out of the land of slavery. I saved you. I love you. I care for you. Now, do these things, and life will go well for you. You'll live well in the land. And so here's the same thing Paul is saying to us, the Lord is saying to us, rejoice. Well, why should I rejoice? Paul gives us the answers. In verses 3 to 7, we begin to find those answers. In verses 3 to 7, we begin to see just what Paul is talking about as to the reason for his rejoicing with his friends in Philippi. Paul is rejoicing simply in the fact that his friends are partners with him in ministry in the mission of proclaiming Jesus Christ and the Gospel. This is no small thing. This partnership with the church in Philippi is essential to his very survival and to their very survival. And he is grateful for each and every one of them. His encouragement to them is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. He is confident that the Lord will complete the work He started in them and will bring them bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 6. We know this verse very, very well. Don't we? We know verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1. 
And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I loved my high school years. I really truly did. I went to a small Christian school and I loved just about every part of that experience. I had good friends. Some of them are still my best of friends to this very day. We still keep in contact with each other. One of them I might even consider my best friend. I loved my high school years. I loved playing sports. I loved hanging out with those friends. But as much as I loved all that, there were a couple of things about high school that I didn't like, specifically my school. I don't know if you can remember high school or if you walked through a high school lately, but there are posters everywhere, aren't they? There's posters to join the Army. There's posters to join the Navy, the Marines. There's posters to buy carnations or pizza or pop. There's posters to join this club or that club. There's posters, 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 posters. I hated the posters. drove me nuts. And I'm not saying this particular kind of poster necessarily aggravated me or drove me nuts, but there's a particular kind of poster that I never really just could figure out. And I think you know, once I say them, what it is I'm talking about. It's those motivational posters, right? You know, like the ones that have the eagles on it, and they say, you can soar on the wings like eagles, and... I just never quite figured it out. And the one that really kind of aggravated me, well, I shouldn't even say aggravated, but the one I couldn't understand was there was one in our locker room that said, I can accomplish all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the picture in the background was a guy dunking on somebody else. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can't do that. At least not in high school. (laughs) But I know I'm a Christian, so why can't I dunk on that guy? It just didn't jive with me. And I don't know that Philippians 1.6 is on one of those posters like that, but I'm pretty sure I've seen that verse on one of those posters before. I am confident that Christ will complete the work He started in you, right? This is what we think of verse 6 of Ephesians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1. I'm not positive it was on that poster, but I would be willing to wager a cup of coffee at White Rhino that you will find one of those motivational pictures with Philippians 1.6 on it. Verse 6, as I said, is about completion. The first and most obvious aspect of verse 6 in reality is that the work the Lord started is that of salvation. Right? Is that of our complete redemption, justification, and sanctification. All of these things are instigated, act upon, and completed by the Lord and the Lord only. And entering into this text this week, I had every intention of diving deep into what that completed work looks like. And what does it mean for the Lord to start it, to act upon it, and to complete our work of redemption in our justification, in our sanctification, and all of these things. And that would have been really, really great. And it is really, really great. But I started to look and I started to, to read more and more and something occurred to me, and I don't know if I'm original to this or not, but it seemed to me that there was all of that is true and all of that is wonderful, but there's more even to that than just our redemption. There's, there's more to this work that the Lord is doing. And so that's, that's where I want to draw us to this morning. The Lord did something wonderful for me this week. There's something in addition to the already amazing work of redemption. Paul is rejoicing through all of 
these sentences and paragraphs that we read, Paul, and in, in, in the outset of Philippians 1, Paul is rejoicing in relationships, in partnerships in the Gospel that he has with these people, his friends. And he is so tremendously moved by them that he determines to write a letter to them while he's in prison. And the church was a bit unstable as Paul was in chains and this very pro-Roman city was enveloping them. So there was a very real sense in which, yes, Paul is talking about redemption. But more, if we read the context and we pay attention, what is he really talking? Is he talking about salvation right now? Or is he talking about relationships? Is he speaking to his beloved friends of how much he cherishes them and loves them? He's talking about fellowship, a deep kind of fellowship, more than just coffee and cookies after church. But, but a real deep fellowship the work the Lord started with them, He and this church, the Lord started this work in and among them. The Lord was building this partnership not only with, between Paul and this church, but with each other and the other people in this city. They are now partners in the Gospel of grace. Or in other words, they're partners together with Jesus Christ. Do you know what it feels like to be alone? Have you ever wondered, is anyone on my side? Or perhaps a more striking question, do you ever feel as if God isn't there? Or He doesn't even care? Me too. Me too. Verse 6 speaks into that situation for us. Because verse 6 takes us back to another work. Another work that was good. Another good work that the Lord started, acted upon, and completed. In creation, the Lord did good work. If you were here for Sunday school, you would hear me uh, repeat, I've already said this refrain. So this is a plug for Sunday school. Come to Sunday school, you hear more good stuff. But there's a refrain in creation. And the chorus says this, it is good. I created all this stuff and it is good. And then he goes on, he says, I created this stuff and it is good. And he goes on, and I created all of this stuff. And he looks back and he says, and he says, it is good, it is very good. And he looked back and after he started this work, after he acted upon this work, and then he completed this work and he said it is very good and he rested the Lord God, took action and he did good work in creation. And here Paul is talking about these relationships, this good work, and he uses that exact same language. The good work that Jesus started in you in this relationship is similar to the good work that he did in creation. What does that mean? What do I mean by that? It means if and when we feel that there is no one on our side, when God's not out there, we just don't have a lot of confidence in who God is and what He's done for us. Can I just ask us for a second to take a moment and, and literally look to the person to your left and look to the person to your right and see that that person is created in the image of God. Look out the windows, kind of, sort of. 
And you can see there's trees. I can see glorious live oaks out the window. Tall. I can see bushes and grass and flowers. I can see a blue sky with a couple wisps of clouds. The Lord started this work. He acted upon this work and He completed this work. And here Paul is saying there's a good work started in us of redemption and salvation, of justification, of sanctification, of all of these things. So if and when we doubt, if and when we wonder, is God there for me? If and when, if and when we wonder who is on my side, we look around and we say God had started and completed the work of creation. And He created friendships and partnerships. And this helps us to realize and to understand and to know without any doubt that He will complete the work that He started in us. At that day of Christ, we will rejoice because it will be completed just as He completed the works of creation and He will say, it is very good. This then is reason for rejoicing. Filling a gas tank. (laughs) I learned my lesson early on in my driving days of the rationale as to why you stand by the car when you fill your gas tank. One of the first times I ever filled the gas tank, I I I was taught that there was a little lever on the gas pump that you could you could stick and it's supposed to you know cause the gas pump to keep going and it gets full, it clicks off, right? I remember my father telling me, yeah, you don't go in the store and buy something because you just never know what might happen if that mechanism fails to work and the, the thing keeps filling. Well, I don't, I don't know how early on in my driving days, I forgot what my father told me, big surprise. But I put the pump in my car, put the locking mechanism in there, and went to the store and went to go buy whatever I was going to buy. I walk out the door, and to my horror, the gas is pouring out of the car. Huge mess. I thought I was in massive trouble. And I couldn't believe it. So I go back in there, and I say to the attendant that was there, I said, the, the pump's not working. It broke. It spilled all over. He's like, yeah, we knew that was a problem. I'm like, well, why did you not fix it then? Now there's this huge mess. Anyway, the Lord, Paul says to the Philippians, in a very real sense, you are being filled with the fruit of righteousness. In that same manner, the Lord Jesus is filling us with the fruit of righteousness to the point of overflowing. So what does it mean to be partners in the Gospel? It means to be filled with His righteousness. And this is one of those phrases in Philippians chapter 1 that we tend to skim over fairly easily where we're automatically think we understand the full meaning of it, but in reality, we just gloss over it and and rarely slow down to fully measure the richness of what it has for us. What does it really mean to be filled with the fruit of righteousness? There are a number of ways that we could look at that. But in this context of the letter, again, it's in regards to relationships and, and partnerships and being in community with one another and being in a church with one another. The context tells us that the fruit is the nature of the righteousness. When we are filled in the same sense that my car overflowed with fuel. When we're filled to the point of brimming over with the fruit of the righteousness that comes from Jesus, it means that we're filled with the fruit of Jesus Himself. This is what this means. It's in verse 11 if you see that with me here. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ 
to the glory of the praise of God. So this fruit comes not from our obedience, not from our acts of righteousness, right? That's what we normally think of it. Well, for me to be righteous, I have to be righteous. I have to obey every jot and tittle. I have to be a good boy or a good girl all the time. Otherwise, I won't be filled with righteousness. I'll be unrighteous. But that's not what Paul is saying here, is it? He's saying that that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus. So the source of our righteousness is not you or me or the things that we do or don't do. The source of our righteousness is Jesus Himself. So if we're filled with Jesus Himself, what does that look like in relationships? What does that look like in a church? What does that look like in partnership? It means that we love the things that Jesus loves. We love the people that Jesus loves. We have the same attitudes of Jesus. Because if we're filled with Jesus and His Spirit to the point of overflowing, there's nothing left in ourselves but Jesus. There was no more room left in my gas tank. And the Holy Spirit fills us with Himself. The fruit comes from Christ. It's the source of our righteousness. So when we're filled with the fruit of righteousness, it means that we're filled with Jesus. That we're filled with the fruit of Jesus. It means we have the same actions as Jesus. So we cling to the work that the Lord Jesus is doing. For us in a world that seems like it spins out of control on a daily basis. Some other big news headline. Some other tragedy. Some other storm. Some other fire. Some other violent act. Are we able to look around and see Jesus? Are we able to love the way Jesus loves? We look around and we can see, yes, Jesus completes this work. The good work we now have the ability to see that that work continues because He's filling us with His fruit, with His righteousness. We're being filled to the overflowing with the same loves, the same attitudes, the same heart, the same little S spirit and the same big S spirit of Jesus. Friends, this then is cause to rejoice. That doesn't mean that once again that we're always happy all the time and never sad. It just means that the Lord, even in those sad moments, in those tragic moments, He's still moving in us and filling us with His fruit to love those who suffer, to love those who are, who are mourning and in sorrow, to love with those who are happy and celebrating. Because these are the people that Jesus loves. In other words, we love our neighbor as the Lord loves us. Paul then concludes these introductory words by expressing to his friends what exactly is the theme for his rejoicing. He draws a sharp line with his friends. He doesn't pull punches as good friends are apt to do. I think you know you have a good friend when they don't hide anything from you. When they call you out for your misdeeds, they support you in your suffering and your sorrows. They celebrate and they rejoice with you in your triumphs and in your joys. But here Paul writes to his friends. Paul acknowledges the situation at hand in Philippi. There are some among them that are glad that Paul is in prison. 
what he says there, for all intents and purposes, there are some among you who are glad that I'm here so that I can't be heard. There are some that are do that because they're jealous and they're envious of my ministry. There are some that like the fact that he's away. But there are also some who are thankful for his ministry and what he has achieved to this point in his life. But he doesn't call out the former as terrible people. He doesn't call them as misguided or anything else for that matter. But what does he call them? He calls them all together as the body of Christ. This is part of what that fruit of the righteousness looks like. It means to love and to care for, to be truthful, but not to call people out. And not, not to say, this is, you are awful, but he acknowledges them all, both sides of the camp. Dare I say, both sides of the aisle. Dare I say, both sides of cultural issues. What does it mean to be in partnership with God's people? What is it? it looks like loving one another as Jesus loves them, us. He acknowledges that they're all partners in the Gospel. And He loves dearly all of them. But where does He get this rejoicing from? What's the source? What's the well? It's the fact that both groups, and we live in a world that is severely divided on so many different levels, on so many different topics. And so Paul speaks into that for us here this morning, doesn't he? Paul rejoices because Jesus is proclaimed on both sides of the topic, on both opinions of who He is and who He is not. And so friends, this morning, it means to be filled with the fruit of righteousness as we love one another. And that together we're partners in the Gospel with Jesus as our source. What does it look like to be a healthy church? There are all kinds of things that we can define it. But a healthy church looks like partnership in Christ. Looks like setting aside some of those differences and understanding who Jesus is. And together, proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Together we proclaim that you and I both, whether we're on the same side of a topic or not, that Jesus lived and died and rose again for you and for me together. That His grace and His mercy was extended to all of God's people. To all of us. And He draws all of us into the same sheepfold. And He doesn't separate us out. But we're all His sheep. We're all His people. And He laid down His life for those that were glad Paul was in prison and those even for those who were glad He was still ministering to them. And so He does the same thing for us. We're partners. We're in fellowship with one another. Not because of whatever banner we fly or color we vote or where we land on a particular social topic, but because Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again for you and for us. This is why Paul rejoices because Jesus is proclaimed and Jesus is preached. 
So friends, let us rejoice. Let's rejoice in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone for He fills us with His righteousness. And whether it's done in envy or rivalry, whether it's done with the overflowing of the fruit of righteousness that the name of Jesus is proclaimed, and for that we rejoice. And so friends, my dearly beloved friends, and I hope you know that that's who you are, my dearly beloved friends, Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in the good work that He started in you. Rejoice in the good work that He is acting upon in your lives. And rejoice because He, as we see one another and as we look around, He will complete it at the day of Christ and He will return. So friends, rejoice in the good work that Jesus is doing in you and who is faithful to complete in you. Rejoice, for you are being filled with right and good relationships, just as Paul was. Rejoice, because you are being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Rejoice, because He gives us the ability to rejoice. We rejoice in the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And together with Paul, we can say, yes, and we will rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for the work that You're doing in our lives. Send Your Spirit to move into us, to fill us with Your righteousness, to fill us with Your love, Your grace, Your mercy. Cause us to rejoice. Rejoice because You are alive and You are our God You are our Savior. You are our rock, our fortress, our strong tower, our friend. May You go before us this afternoon and this week. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus who lives forever and ever. Amen.